kind of crying. It's a way of lamenting. It feels very much like a language of unconscious remembering of something so deep and so buried, which is still alive in me, which comes from a very early age. It's a sort of distress call to God. A reading life, a writing life, with writer and teacher Sally Bailey, produced by Andrew Smith. A very cold boat. I expect it's probably only about four or five degrees in here, maybe maybe five or six. I've just made a fire, put the kettle on. It's funny how one can get used to the cold very quickly. I don't think that's a good idea though. Just walking down to the, to the stern, opening the door. I think my neighbor's got his engine on possibly probably charging his batteries. So the rain is slowing down. This is good news in terms of my... There, I caught myself speaking just then. Sometimes my mouth catches almost on the hinge, if you like, of my jaw and I can't open my mouth or speak as I used to. It's very disconcerting. But actually I'm terrified of my mouth not working properly, of the words being frozen turning into frozen lumps as I speak. I have this image in Girl with Dove, my first coming of age book. I say in that book, the child speaker narrator says that my mother and my aunt spoke gobbledygook, but actually what they were doing was speaking in tongues. T-O-N-G-U-E-S. And I'm thinking of tongues now as I sometimes wrestled to speak but speaking in tongues goes something like this you'll have to admit that's a very strange sound for a child to hear it sounds like a wild animal a wild animal in a desperate state, but there's also something very lyrical about it. And I don't know how I learned to do that, but I must have imitated it. And now it's completely integral to my soundscape. I can just do it. I'm sending something away from myself. My hand just hit the roof of my boat as I did that. I'm pouring something out. It's a release. It's a release of something and it feels quite cathartic actually it feels very cathartic i wonder if we could stage a version of hamlet with everyone ululating
So I grew up in an all-female charismatic household. And I remember my mother suddenly erupted into these strange sounds. But it was really my aunt, I think, who brought that language into our house. She moved in when I was four. And apparently she had run a house group, a charismatic house group somewhere along the coast in Lansing-on-Sea, where she was born and bred. And in some dingy front room in Lansing, a group of people gathered to meet and sat cross-legged on the floor in front of a gas fire where they spoke, so they believed, the words of God. There's something very primal about that cry, that scream that I heard when I was in my late infancy, before I went to school, certainly. And I'm aware as I practice that, that it's somehow related to the cycle of a breath. And the cycle of breathing is attached to poetry, and poetry, in some sense, is the deepest form of language that we have. It comes out of song and dance and the rhythms of breathing. A line of poetry should also relate somehow to the elasticity or the length of our breath, the duration of our breath. On some level, I suppose, I learned to speak in tongues and when I go and speak about literature, I perform my work and it feels very much like a language of unconscious remembering of something so deep and so buried which is still alive in me, which comes from a very early age. Language is hard and fossilised, ancient, old. I'm now beginning to see that my breath, I can still see my breath in this boat of mine, but my fire is fiercely sticking out its own tongues at me, the flames. Meanwhile, I need to think about explaining what my next book is going to be about, which comes out in July 2023. The Green Lady is the third part of a literary coming-of-age story that began with Girl with Dove. So it's the full sequence of coming-of-age. One learns to read, and from doing that, one turns to writing. And in The Green Lady, the child narrator completes her journey from reader to writer with the help of folklore and the laws of nature. Her sources are histories of ancestors and ancestral spirits told to her by her grandmother, who has a complete knowledge, so it seems to the child, of the natural world. The wind, the rain, plants, trees, flowers. These also deep seeds in her literary imagination. And they offer her ways of seeing the world through botany, meteorology and poetry. And a green lady in Celtic mythology is a guardian spirit of place, a fairy godmother or a fairy godfather. And 
the Green Lady protects the home when the residents or the family are away, when they're absent. So she is the spirit of place, the genius loci, as the romantics would say, the romantic poets. She guards the home when the home is empty. And my green ladies are sorts of foster mothers. Nature, of course, is also a foster mother. She nurtures us, but do we nurture her? That is the question. I run back to the beginning, towards the green, the first colour I saw lying on the grass. Now, if you want to get back to the beginning, you must come a different way, with the child in mind. She knows the ground is there. She can feel it with her soft feet. Pad, pad, pad. They pad across the words. Towards, towards. Because we must always go somewhere. Life must have a plot. So go towards the child who pushes through the words, thick and woody and layered. Green and shiny, they fell on her face and she cannot see her way through the sunlight, through the thick hedge, through and through with her strong hands, picking up the words that fall and shed as she clambers down to fetch them, down and down and down and through the yew leaves. Texas Picarda, the tree of death, Hecate, goddess of the underworld, who moves with red berries crushed in the palm of her hand, who pushes through the soil towards the child, who sees all the colours of life and death. The Green Lady is out next summer, because I'm having to read through the proofs, the first typescript, printed PDF proofs of The Green Lady, and I've made it very large so I can see the text clearly. And my job is to go through and look for any sentences that still need some smoothing, any word choices that still need to be altered and changed and improved. But it's only a very small list of things. I don't want to do major rewrites at this point. So, my first proof notes on the Green Lady thus far, I've got about six. Page 10. See, the sun has been setting for a while, and soon she will fade. But the goddess... Dot, 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 dot. The image of the sun comes and goes throughout this book, as it does in No Boy's Play here. And it's, it's that idea of the diurnal circle of life and death of light and dark, which is such an important part of my life on this boat. Um, dawn, my porthole, looking out through the window and seeing what the sky is telling me today. See, the sun has been setting for a while and soon she will fade. So I've just added see. There's a lot of pointing at things. There's a lot of language of pointing and directing. There's a posh word for it in Latin, but we won't bother with that for now. Just think of it as a pair of fingers pointing. Look, there, see, hear, that sort of language. 
it's directorial. It's this idea of a curator or a director taking us around, as you would go around a museum or an art gallery. Second note, and the artist is a solitary creature. And all I've done there is soften the beginning of a sentence. I'm very fond of conjunctions. I use a lot of ands. And sometimes I use buts, although I was reproved for that by my first copy editor. But that's what a child does. A child is always saying but, but, but. They want to contradict the adult. So Girl with Dove has quite a few buts. Um, no boys and... No boys play here, that is. And the green lady has quite a few ands. And I learned about that from reading Emily Dickinson. She's a great fan of the and. And this and that. Starting a new line. A new mode of thought. And the artist is a solitary creature. So the artist in this case is Joseph Mallard William Turner. J.M. W. Turner. Who painted Shoreham Harbour. Very beautiful image of the sun setting over Shoreham Harbour. My grandmother grew up around Shoreham. That's where she's from. She's now dead. But that's where her ancestors are from too. And I recreate the scene of J.M.W. Turner painting Shoreham Harbour. This wonderful image of the sun like a Catherine wheel turning in the sky. The artist and the artist is a solitary creature. Then I have another note. Page 44. Nothing else is going on, and I'm alone in my carriage. The carriage there is the train carriage, and that is the scene where I, as writers, speak out about the contents of my dreams and the fact that there's this recurring writing dream, me in a train moving through the Sussex countryside. Inspired by Virginia Woolf, no doubt, again, uh, Mr Bennett and Mrs Brown essay, which takes on the whole of Victorian, Edwardian and modern literature takes place in a carriage. I do like moving railway carriages. They do inspire me to create motion, locomotion, very important for a writer. And then finally, page 49, let the air in. And I've written reorder words as this is more like mum saying it. That was just syntax. And syntax is very important, at least it is to me. I'm sure it is to most writers. The order of the words, the rhythm, the cadence. I had let in the air, but actually mum wouldn't have said it like that. She would have said, let the air in, won't you? My mother was always flinging windows open. I grew up in a cold house by the sea, which is probably why I can manage this boat on a cold and frosty evening. Red, the colour of my grandmother's finger after she rubs her Christmas cactus plant for luck, dabs it with cotton wool and wraps around a plaster. Red peeks out on top, paler, thinner, mixed with pink. My grandmother's skin, red, the colour of the slap left on my cheek, green, a child left unwrapped. Red and green, the colour of words before you add anything to them. Life, history, all that talk of meaning. The colour of memory before you add seasoning. A certain way of seeing words on the page with the white foamy sea washing around them. Full of intention, dying to know, always dying to know. The child, dying to know.
as you lay out in the garden, five minutes from the sea, keen to join the shingle and salt wind, the quiet pat, 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 pat of the sand, the shoreline, photograph from pure joy of seeing the sun fall on the waves and the promenade, lying out long and hard along the breakwaters. This is your garden too, with only a flint wall and a road in the way, pushing hard against the soil. The green lady speaking, who once was a child and is now a woman and a writer who understands that words are full of intention. They long to speak. Memory longs to speak. My grandmother longed to speak, but she spoke through plants, her Christmas cacti, spread out on her kitchen table, drooping over the sides, a waterfall of green. That's what I remember, a waterfall of green. The Green Lady, my next book. Thank you for listening to A Reading Life, A Writing Life with writer and teacher Sally Bailey. Produced by Andrew Smith. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like it, give us a review, or mention us to friends or on social media. Thank you.